Well, before we look at the word this morning, I just want to take this time and speak to our kids. Um, two weeks ago, we had a, a big cleanup day here, and a lot of people came out. And I just want to take this time to specifically thank the children, um, because I realize on a Saturday morning, that's probably not the number one thing you want to do, is come to a church building and clean up. But you guys came, and you worked really hard, and I think all of the adults were very thankful that you were there and you helped out. We are glad you're a part of our church, and we are glad that you came on that Saturday to help clean. And so I just want to speak on behalf of the church and let you know that. Well, this morning, we're uh, beginning a new series, and I'll get into what that is in just in a minute. But I wonder, when deciding on being a part of a church, what the thought process is for you on how to choose a church. What are the guiding factors for whether or not you will join a church? I wonder how many Christians actually think about that. Maybe it's because you're, you're in a situation where you have young children and so you go to a church looking for a, an incredible children's ministry. Or maybe you have teenagers, and so you're looking for a church that has an awesome youth ministry where your teenagers can connect with other teenagers. Or maybe you're musical, and so you're looking for a church that has incredible singing and music. Or maybe it was simply the fact that you went to a church and you found that that church was so welcoming that you just decided, I want to make this church my home because they are such a welcoming people. The most welcoming church I've ever been to is actually a Jehovah Witness church. So I wouldn't recommend you go to a church simply because they're welcoming. Maybe it's because they offer lots of beneficial programs for you and your family. Or maybe it's simply because you're looking for a similar demographic. And so this church has a lot lot of young adults or this church has a lot, lot of young families. And so you decide, I want to go there because I'm in that season of life as well. And so it's a way for me to be able to connect with these people. Or possibly it's because you're looking for a a relevant message from a relevant pastor who's hip and cool, of which I am not. (laughs) There's all these reasons that people come up with for why they want to join a church. And though a large majority of those things might be good, they ought not be the fundamental reasons for, for joining a church. If I were to ask you, what are the things that a church should be committed to in order to be a Christ-honoring church, I wonder how you might answer that. What are the marks of a God-glorifying, healthy church? It's important for you to know that as a Christian, because when you join a church, you have a responsibility as being a part of that church to see that church become a Christ-honoring church. It's not just the pastors who are responsible for that. It's the members of the congregation that are called to build and edify the church of Jesus Christ. And so it's essential you know what are the marks of a Christ-honoring church. And I, I don't think it's an exaggeration for me to say that the majority of evangelical Christians often join churches for the wrong reasons. Or maybe not the best 
reasons, the most important reasons. Let, let me give you an example. You probably know Christians, and maybe you've experienced this, where when you started looking for a church, was one of the things you asked the elders of that church was whether or not they had a youth group or whether or not they were a church who practiced church discipline. You see, the majority of Christians would look for a church that has a youth ministry before whether or not that church practices church discipline. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a youth ministry. A youth ministry can be helpful. But the Bible doesn't command that a church have a youth ministry. But it does command that a church practice biblical church discipline. Which means if you have a youth ministry, but you're not practicing biblical church discipline, you are being disobedient to the word of the Lord. And so I want to, starting this morning, do a small series, a topical series, on what are the marks of a Christ-honoring church. What should we be striving for as a church? What should we be committed to as a local church? And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at the marks of a healthy, Christ-honoring church. And I want to be clear, this isn't an exhaustive list, okay? So you're going to hear some things, and, and you're probably going to wonder, why didn't Peter say that this is a mark of a healthy church? For example, I'm not going to do a sermon on we need to love each other as a mark of a healthy church. Though I would say that the Bible makes very clearly that if we don't love each other, we're not a healthy church. So I, I want to be clear, this isn't an exhaustive list. I'm not going to talk about missions. I'm not going to talk about giving in this series. But I want to speak to the things that are often overlooked or neglected, yet are essential for a healthy church because God deems them essential. And if you want to go into this into greater detail, I want to encourage you to read Mark Dever's book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. A lot of this book has, has shaped my framework for this series. So mark number one of a Christ-honoring church, which we're looking at this morning, not the bookmark one, mark number one of a healthy church, is expositional preaching. Expositional preaching. And I'm starting with this because I believe it's the most important. Because in a sense, every other mark that defines a healthy church flows from this one. If you get this one right, the others should flow. So let me pray for us as we look at God's word. Father, we ask that you, by your spirit, would speak to our hearts. Help me to be faithful to your word. Help us to be faithful listeners. And we pray that by your spirit you would seal these truths upon our hearts and that we as a church would strive to live by them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So you have an outline there in your bulletin and you can follow along with that. It's funny that I'm preaching on the marks of a healthy church and the first one is expositional preaching but I'm doing a topical sermon. Um, and so I'm going to be looking at a lot of verses, and I want to encourage you up front to not try to keep up with me by turning, okay, because we're going to be going through a lot of verses. So I've, I've put some of the verses in your bulletin for you, 
So if you want, you can take those and look at them later when you're at home. So first thing we need to ask is this. What is expositional preaching? What is expositional preaching? The best way to really explain it is to contrast it to what we typically refer to as topical preaching. So this morning, I'm, I'm doing a topical sermon. So when we say we're committed to expositional preaching, we're not saying that we think all forms of talk, topical preaching are wrong. Topical preaching can be done biblically and unbiblically. Okay? Topical preaching can be done expositionally. And so topical preaching is typically the idea that you take a, a truth or a theme and then you go to the Bible and you find passages that would help explain or inform us on that theme. And there, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're preaching those passages within the context. You're not twisting them or misusing them. But expositional preaching is when you come to the word first. And you begin to study that passage that you're studying and you allow that passage to build what you're going to speak on. So here's a, here's a general definition. Expositional preaching is the task of taking the point of the scriptural passage and making that the point of your sermon. It's explaining and proclaiming what God has said in his word. It's what we did when we went through the book of Philippians. I didn't take an idea or a theme and then went to Philippians. No, I went to Philippians and I asked, what does this book say? And then I sought to explain it to us. Verse by verse, passage by passage, unfolding and explaining what God has revealed. So expositional preaching is when the preacher unfolds for the congregation what God has revealed in his word. So this needs to, now we need to ask the question, why? Why should we, as a local church, be committed to unfolding God's word? Why should you, as a church, demand from me that I get up here on a Sunday morning and I take us through the Word of God. Why? What's the foundation of that? I think I've given you five reasons in your bulletin. And the first is the most obvious one. Because we believe that the Bible is God's inspired, authoritative Word to us. We believe that the Bible is God's insp inspired, authoritative Word. Word to us. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but two passages, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, Paul says this, all scripture, that's important. He doesn't say parts of scripture. He doesn't say some scripture. Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. There are many movements today that would argue that parts of the Bible are inspired. And the reason is, is because there's certain Things in the scripture that are hard to deal with, like the judgment of God. 
And so they'll say, well, this part is inspired, but this part is not. But Paul doesn't think that way. The Apostle Paul sees all Scripture as breathed out by God, inspired by God. In 2 Peter 1, 19-21, the Apostle Peter writes this, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's referring this, referring to Christ speaking to them verbally. He says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed than when we heard the actual voice of God, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the the New Testament writers, the Old Testament writers, they all make the claim that the word of God, the very words of God written down for us, are inspired and authoritative. They are from God. And this is one of the reasons why we as a church must be committed to the faithful preaching of God's word. It's because we believe this book is inspired. We believe the very words of Almighty God. The second reason is that we believe that God has primarily, that word primarily is key, primarily revealed himself to us through his word. Through his word. That word primarily is important because I'm not saying God has only revealed himself to us by his word. In fact, the word of God has told us that God has made himself known in other ways. The heavens declare the glory of God. Not only that, we know that God has revealed himself through different events within history. For example, the event of the exodus out of Egypt. God revealed himself to Israel by signs and wonders. So God has revealed himself in other ways. But, but I want you to imagine being an Israelite in Egypt. And I want you to imagine that Moses comes to Egypt with his staff, but he's mute. He doesn't speak. And I want you to imagine that all these plagues are taking place. The frogs are coming up into the land. The the, the waters turn to blood. The death of the firstborn. the, the, The ten different plagues. Imagine seeing all of that. And imagine never hearing God explain what's happening. Would you conclude that it was the God of Israel, the true and living God that was doing these plagues? No, you probably wouldn't. You would probably think there's something supernatural taking place. There's, there's, you know, Egypt has probably sinned against their own gods or whatever it may be. But if you were an Israelite seeing those plagues, because remember, Israel hasn't heard from God in over 400 years. They wouldn't know what was happening. They would know something miraculous is taking place, but they wouldn't be able to explain it. 
You see, when you, when you read the Bible and God does the miraculous, it's interesting. God usually always speaks before and he says what he's going to do and then he interprets after he's done it. The only reason why Israel knew that those plagues were from the God of Israel is because God said they were. He spoke to them. See, this is so important because words are essential to knowing someone. Words are essential to knowing someone, especially when it comes to God because we have been separated from God due to our sin. So the only way that we can in any way, in any form, gain knowledge of God is if He is willing to speak. Is if He is willing to give us words. You think of a young man who is at a coffee shop and he sees another pretty young lady sitting across at another table and, and he's interested. So he decides to come back the next day and see if she'll be there. And if he just simply watched her, that sounds creepy, but if he simply just watched her for a few weeks, he'd probably learn a lot about her. He'd probably learn about what kind of coffee she drinks, what kind of clothing she wears. He might learn about the kinds of things she reads if she decides to do that at a coffee shop. So there's a lot of things that he would learn about her simply by observing her. But the relationship would take on a whole other level, level if he went and actually began to speak with her. When she begins to communicate words to him, he'll learn far more about her than he would ever have if he simply just observed. It's the same with God. God will show himself. He will manifest himself. You think of Moses in the burning bush. What if God did not speak to Moses? Moses would have simply saw a burning bush. But God spoke to him and revealed himself to Moses through words. In 1 Samuel 3.21, the, the calling of Samuel the prophet when he's a young, a young boy, the Lord speaks to him three times and at the third time he he realizes it's the Lord speaking to him. And, and we're told this at the end of the passage. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel. How? By the word of the Lord. So God was made known to Samuel by God's words. By God's words. And this, I believe, is really the primary task of preaching. More than anything else, more than teaching you how to live, the primary task of preaching is to reveal God, to make him known who he is, what he has done, his ways, his excellencies, his beauty, his glory, his love, his mercy, his grace. When I come to this book, my fundamental purpose is not primarily to help you be a better husband or a better wife, though that is important. But my primary purpose is that you would see God, that you would be enamored with the glory of God, and that through that, that would then equip you and empower you to be a better husband or a better wife or a better single person or a better child. So we believe that the Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God. 
We believe that God has primarily revealed himself to us through his word. The third reason why we ought to be committed to expositional preaching is this. God's word has revealed to us the salvation of God. The word of God tells us that the greatest problem every human being faces is that we are sinners before a holy, just, and righteous God and are therefore guilty and condemned because of our sin. But the word of God also tells us that this same holy, just, and righteous God is a God who is full of mercy, love, and forgiveness, and he has provided a way for sinners like you and me to be forgiven and brought into a restored relationship to God while at the same time he upholds his righteousness and justice. And that way, that way that God has provided, the word of God tells us, is God sending his own son into the world, the word taking on flesh, to die in the place of sinners and bear the penalty for our sins. So that any person who would repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven, and they will be reconciled to the God who made them. The Word of God tells us this. How else would we know that a Jewish man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago would have any importance or relevance or significance for us if not for the Word of God? The most important message in the universe is contained in the Word of God. Here in this book, we discover the worst news in the universe. We are all sinners before a holy God. But the best news as well is found in this book. That holy God has provided salvation for us in Christ Jesus. That if we truly repent and believe upon Him, we can have our sins forgiven forever. That's why we preach this book. So we believe the Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God. We believe that God has primarily revealed himself to us through his word. We believe that God's word has revealed to us the salvation of God found in Christ. Fourth, fourth reason for why we ought to commit to expositional preaching. God's word brings life to God's people. God's word brings life to God's people. From the beginning of scripture to the end, we see that God's word contains power within itself. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. How does he do it? He simply speaks. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. The very word of God brought forth the universe that we live in. And we find out in John chapter 1 verse 1 that the word of God, the voice of God, is actually the son of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God speaks, 
The Son is the Word, and life comes into existence. Hebrews 1.3, we're told about Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe, how? By the word of his power. I think of the story of Jesus and Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus has been dead for four days, and he comes to the tomb. And what does Jesus do? Does he offer some sacrifice? Does he do some ritual? No. This man's in the tomb, and Jesus stands at the tomb, and he simply says, Lazarus, come forth. And a man comes out of the grave. The very words of Jesus bring life. The words of God bring life. There's probably no greater passage that makes this clear than Ezekiel 37, 1-10 which I believe was actually read last week for us, but Ezekiel has this vision and God is speaking to him and this is what he says. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. This is an image for Israel. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. We're dealing with a graveyard. He's standing in the midst of a graveyard. There are dead bones that are very dry everywhere. And he, that is God, said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. I want you to picture this. Bones, graveyard. And Ezekiel is called to prophesy over these bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you. And cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army, the army of Israel. Life comes from hearing God's word. If you've truly been saved by Jesus Christ, it's because you heard the word of God. And through hearing that word, the Holy Spirit breathed life into you. And so we believe that the Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God. We believe that God has primarily revealed himself to us through his word. We believe that God has revealed to us the salvation of God through his word, and we believe that God's word brings life to God's people. And finally, we believe that God's word sanctifies his people. 
In John 17, it's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus is praying before his Father. And he says this in verse 17, Sanctify them, he's referring to the disciples, Sanctify them, that is make them holy, in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctifying, becoming holy, is dependent upon us being in the truth, which is the word. God's word. In Ephesians 5, 25-26, there's this instruction for husbands. But the passage is actually about Jesus and his bride, the church. And we, we read this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then we read this. That he, that is Christ, might sanctify her. Christ gave himself up for his church for the purpose of sanctifying her. But how? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. With the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ is committed to you, his church. He is committed to you in such a way that he will make you holy. He will sanctify you by his word. He will wash you by his word. Psalm 119, which Christina read for us. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored up your word in my heart. Not simply, I have committed to reading your word. That's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, I'm committed to storing your word up in my heart that I might not sin against you. In 2 Chronicles 34, which Bev read for us, we know the story. For some reason, we don't know the reason, but the word of the Lord has been lost. The law of God has been lost. And we know that the kings of Israel, the primary thing that they were supposed to do as the king of Israel was to study and know the word of the Lord, the law of God. And so this, this scroll is found in the temple and it's brought to King Josiah and it's read to him. And when he hears it, he's stunned because he's hearing the words of God and he's realized we have not been following what we were supposed to do. We have not been keeping the words of God. And so he tears his robe, he, he mourns and he repents and he calls all of Israel to mourn and repent. And we read in verse 29, Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. 
And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Why? Because he heard the word of the Lord and he heeded it. He responded to it rightly. He repented of his way of living and he he called Israel to do the same. They heard the words of God and they responded rightly. These are the reasons for why we as a church must be committed to the preaching of God's word. Because God has revealed himself to us in his word. Salvation has been made known through his word. His word brings life. His word sanctifies Which leads to my final point. The primary task of a pastor or elders, pastor, elders, same word, is the preaching of God's word. The primary task, the reason why you called me as your pastor is before anything else to be faithful to preaching God's word. 2 Timothy 4, 1-4, Paul writes to young Timothy, who's a pastor, And he says to Timothy, and hear the the heaviness and the weightiness of these words, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. I charge you in the presence of God, Timothy. Preach the word. There are eternal matters at hand. God is coming to judge the living and the dead. Preach the word in light of that reality. In season and out of season. See, Timothy wasn't called to plan a bunch of events or whatever it may be. Though all those things can be beneficial, Timothy was called to be faithful in preaching the word of God. In Acts 6, 1 to 4, we have this situation, the, the early church, there, there's an issue going on with the distribution of food and, and, and resources. And we read this, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is Jews who would have spoken Greek, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Daily distri- distribution. So the widows... There, there seems to be some kind of favoritism going to some of the widows over the other widows that the church is caring for. And so the twelve, that is the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, 
It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, they're not saying that this ministry isn't important. I want to be clear. Okay? There are ministries that happen in the life of the church, caring for people's needs, that are vital for a church to be doing. So the apostles are not saying this isn't important. But they are saying something about the centrality of the Word of God in the life of the church. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you, uh, um, among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not an apostle. Pastors are not apostles. But there's a principle here. That those who have been called by God and the church to the task of preaching God's word, they must devote their time and their energy to that task. Before anything else. Because the health of the church is dependent upon the preaching of God's word. And this is a task that must not be taken lightly. You should demand, as members of this church, that your pastors never take the preaching of God's Word lightly. I have been to churches and I have been to conferences where I have heard preachers who take the Word lightly. There's a flippancy to their preaching. And as long as I am the pastor here, and as long as you continue to call me to preach God's Word, I pray that I would never take the preaching of God's Word lightly, and that any person who stands here and preaches would never take God's Word lightly. There's a reason why in James 3.1, we're warned. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You shouldn't want to be a pastor. I'm kidding. I actually would love for some of you to become a pastor. In 1 Timothy 5, 17, Paul actually says that elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. And the double honor there is referring to resources, their financial needs. And it says this, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. In other words, Paul sees the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God as so valuable to the life of a church that a church should do everything they can to allow their pastors to be able to give their full time to the study of God's Word. That's the point that Paul's making. Because as Paul says here, it's a work of labor. Who labor in preaching and teaching. Preaching God's word faithfully is a laborious task. It is. It is hard work. It demands mental exhaustion. And I'm not saying this that you, so that you'd pity me. But rather that you truly value what we're doing here on a Sunday morning as we gather to hear the word of God. My task as a preacher of God's word is fundamentally, isn't fundamentally to create a message, but rather deliver a message that's already been created by God. 
The preacher must not add to God's word, nor subtract from God's word, nor twist God's word, but explain and proclaim his word. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because even within the Christian world, there are pastors and theologians and churches who will tell you that preaching the word of God isn't all that important. It's not helpful or effective in today's society. We have to think of of more effective ways to reach people. Preaching was for a different time. And my question to those who promote such ideas is simply this. Are you wiser than God? Do you know better than God? Do you know something that God doesn't know? Because when I read this book, I have discovered over and over again that God has ordained that his kingdom and his salvation for lost sinners will come about by the preaching of his word in the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, Verses 17 to 25, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And he says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Listen, people have always thought that the word of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, is folly. It's not new today. Paul dealt with the same thing. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God cannot be known through human reason and human wisdom, human attempts to grasp him. It pleased God through the folly, through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. Me getting up here every Sunday morning according to the world is foolishness. It's folly to those who are perishing. But then Paul says this, but to those who are called, to those who are called by God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Preaching the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to God, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. That crucified man on a cross 2,000 years ago, proclaiming that he is the savior of the world, is foolishness. But to God, it is his power and his wisdom on display for the world to see. 
And so Mark 1 of a healthy Christ-honoring church is a church committed and devoted to the preaching of God's word. For man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Lord, I pray that we as a church would never take for granted your word. And that, Lord, we would be so committed to your word that we would, we pray, Lord, that Royal York Baptist Church would be known for the preaching of God's word, not just in our lifetime, but in our children's and in our children's children's lifetime. That Royal York would be known for many years as a church that is faithful to expounding and proclaiming your word above all other things. Give us this, we pray, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.